uh, reading this evening, I am going to read from the New English Bible, and I am going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second chapter of the second letter of the Thessalonians. And now, brothers, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his gathering of us to himself, I beg you, do not suddenly lose your heads or alarm yourselves, whether at some oracular utterance or pronouncement or some letter purporting to come from us, alleging that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way whatever. That day cannot come before the final rebellion against God, when wickedness <laughs> will be revealed in human form, the man doomed to perdition. He is the enemy. He rises in his pride against every god so called, every object of men's worship, and even takes his seat in the temple of God, claiming to be a god himself. You cannot but remember that I told you this while I was still with you. You must now be aware of the restraining hand which ensures that he shall be revealed only at the proper time. For already the secret power of wickedness is at work, secret only for the present, until the restrainer disappears from the scene. And then he will be revealed, that wicked man whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, and annihilate by the radiance of his coming. But the coming of that wicked man is the work of Satan. It will be attended by all the powerful signs and miracles of the lie, and all the deception that sinfulness can impose on those doomed to destruction. Destroyed they shall be, because they did not open their minds to the love to love of the truth, so as to find salvation. Therefore God puts them under a delusion which works upon them to believe the lie so that they may all be brought to judgment, all who do not believe the truth but make sinfulness their deliberate choice. And I want to read in the book of Revelation and chapter 13. I'm going to read it again in the New English Bible because of the way that it, um, in colloquial language, tends to help us. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. He took his stand on the seashore. Then, out of the sea, I saw a beast rising. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten diadems, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw was like a leopard, but its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. The dragon conferred upon it his power and rule and great authority. <clears throat> One of its heads appeared to have received death blow, but the mortal wound was healed. The whole world went after the beast in wondering admiration. Men worshipped the dragon because he had conferred his authority upon the beast. They worshipped the beast also and chanted, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast was allowed to mouth 
bombast and blasphemy and was given the right to reign for 42 months. It opened its mouth in blasphemy against God, reviling his name and his heavenly dwelling. It was also allowed to wage war on God's people and to defeat them and was granted authority over every tribe and people, language and nation. All on earth will worship it except those whose names the lamb that was slain keeps in his role of the living, written there since the world was made. Hear, you who have ears to hear, whoever is meant for prison, to prison he goes. Whoever takes the sword to kill by the sword, he is bound to be killed. Here the fortitude and faithfulness of God's people have their place. Then I saw another beast which came up out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb's, but spoke like a dragon. It wielded all the authority of the first beast in its presence and made the earth and its inhabitants worship this first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It worked great miracles, even making fire come down from heaven to earth before men's eyes. By the miracles it was allowed to perform in the presence of the beast, it deluded the inhabitants of the earth and made them erect an image in honour of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that it could speak, and could cause all who would not worship the image to be put to death. Moreover, it caused everyone great and small, rich and poor, slave and free, to be branded with a mark on his right hand or forehead, and no one was allowed to buy or sell unless he bore this beast's mark either name or number. Here is the key, and anyone who has intelligence may work out the number of the beast. The number represents a man's name, and the numerical value of its letters <coughs> is 666. Now just a few verses in Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels that held the seven bowls came and spoke to me and said, Come, I and I will show you the judgment on the great whore enthroned above the ocean. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and on the wine of her fornication men all over the world have made themselves drunk. In the spirit he carried me away into the wilds, and there I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast which was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand she held a gold cup full of obscenities and the foulness of her fornication. And written on her forehead was a name with a secret meaning, Babylon the Great, the mother of whores and of every obscenity on earth. A woman I saw who was drunk with the blood of God's people and with the blood of those who had borne their testimony to Jesus. As I looked at her, I was greatly astonished. But the angel said to me, Why are you so astonished? I will tell you the secret of the woman and of the beast she rides with the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast you have seen is he who once was alive and is alive no longer, but has yet to ascend out of the abyss before going to petition. Those on earth whose names have not been inscribed in the role of the living ever since the world was made will all be astonished to see the beast. For he once was alive and is alive no longer and has still to appear. But here is the clue for those who can interpret it. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. 
They represent also seven kings of whom five have already fallen, one is now reigning and the other has yet to come. And when he does come, he is only to last for a little while. As for the beast that once was alive and is alive no longer, he is an eighth. And yet he is one of the seven and he is going to perdition. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to reign, but who for one hour are to share with the beast the exercise of royal authority. For they have but a single purpose among them, and will confer their power and authority upon the beast. They will wage war upon the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and his victory will be shared by his followers, called and chosen and faithful. Well now, it would be stupid of me to even think that we could go over what we have already said in the last two evenings about the Antichrist, particularly in the, in the light of the reign of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. But you will remember that last week we stopped just at the point of what we can learn from the policies of Antiochus Epiphanes concerning the policies of the Antichrist. You will remember that far from being a fiend, a kind of uh, a fanatical religionist, um, the Antichrist in all likelihood will be just like Antiochus Epiphanes, a cultured, refined, affable, genial, popular democrat at least outwardly, a man who will simply, as it were, take in everyone and everything. Now we learn that quite clearly from the Word of God if we turn uh, just to these scriptures, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And this speaks, of course, of great intelligence. And a mouth speaking great things. In verse 20, we have exactly the same thing again. Even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great things, but something else is added, whose look was more stout than his fellows. In other words, there is some strength of very real strength of personality, a unique personality. In chapter 8, verse 23, we read, And in the latter time of their kingdoms, of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance, and understanding dark sentences or understanding riddles will stand up. Again, evidently someone who is very intelligent. If you turn to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4, we read, And they worship the dragon because he gave his authority unto the beast, <coughs> And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to war with him? And then again, 
Um, if you turn to Revelation 17 and verse 13, Revelation 17 and verse 13, these have one mind and, and they give their power and authority unto the beast. And then if you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, and for this God, for this cause, God sendeth them a working of error that they should believe a lie. So it is quite clear that the Antichrist is in fact a most deceptive personality. A very great personality with very great intelligence. Uh, if we are to understand from what we have learnt through this, this man um, Antiochus Epiphanes, then he is an affable, genial uh, man, uh, greatly liked and very popular with all. Now, you will remember that we talked last week about um, uh, the policies of Antiochus Epiphanes, which were, were really to completely unify the whole of his um, kingdom, uh, to seek to reconcile all in his kingdom under into one, and to do that by Greek language and by Greek culture and Greek um, uh, traditions. In other words, anything which divides is wrong. Now, it doesn't need me to say uh, much about that this evening. I said it last week. But you must surely know that the watchword now throughout Europe is unity. Political unity, economic unity, religious unity. The, strangely enough, it was these three objectives which were the very objectives of Antiochus Epiphanes. His objective was political unity, not only for his own kingdom, but he hoped in the end for the whole of the Mediterranean era, area and Asia. Political unity, economic unity, religious unity. Now, we know that the watchword today, both in the United Nations and in the world at large, and particularly here in Europe, is unity. In fact, we are fast coming to the place where um, it is thought that anything which divides is n of necessity wrong. It is more important to be united. Truth is secondary. Principles are secondary. To be united is the main thing. And, of course, there are two main drives behind this thing. The first is we have had so much war through division that there is a reaction against anything that could possibly be the springboard for more war. Therefore, people argue, is it really right that we should be divided and thereby possibly cause friction which will lead to another world war? 55 million people died in the last world war. Isn't it best to be united, let go of principle, let go of truth, if, if these things are going to cause friction, and be united? In other words, if we are a unit, there is more possibility 
of, of, of banning war and banning strife. You can already see the cry that will eventually come for a world police force, a world uh, control of nations to stop some little flare-up on the African continent or the South American continent or in Asia or in Europe developing into a world war with all its frightful consequences. Now, unity is therefore the watchword, but that's not the only aim. In the world in which we live, economically, we've got to be one. Because the boundaries of mankind are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, if we are to economically exist, if the life, the standard of living that you and I have known is to be kept and developed and to progress, then there's no place any longer for little separate units in the world. We've got to come into blocks, economic blocks. This is the whole idea behind the common market. It is almost the idea behind Esther. It is certainly the idea behind other groupings of nations. The idea is that somehow or other economically, for survival, we've got to come into bigger and bigger groups. Now, you can see that happening on a smaller scale in London. All the small shops are disappearing because economically they are finding it impossible to go on. So gradually, the only way that they can survive is, by, is by, by coming into a larger combine. One after another, things go, are, are, are coming into such great concerns, so that all, all, all the time now we read of takeover bids, so that gradually there are great empires of this or that or the other, the simple fact is that it is almost impossible for the family business to survive or the um, individual business to really compete with these large concerns. Now, all that shows, uh, that's on a small scale, a national scale. But if you start to think of that on an international scale, you will understand the drive that there is for unity now. It is not only political. In order to ban war, it is economic. In order to give a, a, a standard of living that is right and just for all. These are the two things that lie behind the um, drive towards unity. Now, you remember last week I did mention that there have been, even um, hundreds of years ago, um, attempts to bring at least Europe into this, uh, into this unit. Napoleon, the whole dream of Napoleon was for one great unified empire from the Atlantic to the Urals. It was the dream of Hitler, a kind of pan-German super race that, uh, into which other um, nations could come in as satellites, as vassal nations. It was the dream of Mussolini. Mussolini's dream was to revive the ancient Roman Empire, particularly in the Mediterranean. It was the dream of Stalin for world communism, but much more for Stalinism, that there should be a worldwide empire ruled by the Kremlin. 
And of course, Winston Churchill. You remember that after the war, his great concern was what he called the United States of Europe. And there were two things that Mr. Churchill continually stressed. One was it was the only way to stop war was to somehow create a United States of Europe and the only way that economically the different nations of Europe would be able to survive in the decades that lie ahead. He is absolutely right. So now today we are faced with the common market and the fact of the matter is that this country, though it doesn't want to go into the common market, is being forced, whether it likes it or not, to go in. There seems to be absolutely no other alternative. And once Britain goes in, then probably a number of the other ethnations will follow suit and you will have the beginning of a real unit for the first time for a thousand years in Europe. Well, now, that's so much for what we have said. <clears throat> we do know whatever we may feel about this religious unity, I might just add one thing I didn't say anything about last week. Will this, will this beast, this, this great political economic system, will it be absolutely worldwide? Will it include every single nation and area in the world? I don't think that we have to accept that that is so necessarily. In fact, there are indications in the word of God that it will not be worldwide in the sense that every single nation will be included. What we do know is this, that the Antichrist's power and influence will be absolutely worldwide. And that his system, his empire if you like, this great political system will in fact straddle most of the world we know. Now what we do know is that religious unity is one of the objectives of Antichrist's policy. It was one of the objectives of Antiochus Epiphanes and it certainly will be one of the objectives of the coming Antichrist. Now we have seen everyone in this room a nothing short of a miracle taking place before our eyes. Um, I remind you, without uh, being immodest, because I believe it was the word of God, that I have said to you before ever this happened, that I believe there would in the end be a, 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 a world church consisting of all the great historic denominations. Now you have lived to see that thing happening. In the last few years, what is nothing short of a satanic miracle and what in the end will appear to be one of the great miracles of the 20th century is the reunifying, the bringing together of all the historic segments of Christendom which for so long had been violently opposed to one another. You have the World Council of Churches. It began as some little concern over 30, 40 years ago. No one thought anything about the World Council of Churches until 1948 when suddenly it seemed as if its policies might gain 
um, acceptance on a wider scale. When the, the, the Orthodox churches, Russian, Armenian, Coptic, um, Bulgarian, and, 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 and Greek joined the World Council of Churches, there was for the first time an understanding that there was a possibility of a world church. From that point onwards, one of the commonest phrases in the World Council of Churches in their messages and discussions was the coming great world church. The coming great world church. And it was said by a great Swedish archbishop that, of course, he said, first we had Paul, that is the Protestant churches, now John has come in, that is the Orthodox churches, and we're waiting for Peter. Peter has not yet come, but we're waiting for him to come. They hadn't had to wait too long. Um, the Second Vatican Council uh, took place not so very long ago, and for the first time in centuries, John, Pope John XXIII spoke of the heretics of former years as separated brethren. Overnight, a most remarkable change took place in the Roman Catholic Church. We, who had been heretics for for something like a thousand years, were suddenly found to be separated brethren. And we were told that the Roman Church would welcome us with wide open arms when the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, Dr. Ramsey, went to the Vatican just this last summer. What was it that was said to him? He was told not to feel uncomfortable for they said, this is your home, and you are returning to your home. The Vatican Council. Now, I'm not going to start talking about that. I've talked enough about the Vatican Council and the way the moderator of the Church of Scotland gave the Pope a, pedal, a pebble and, and from, the, from the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and in return got a number of volumes of Roman Catholic history. Uh, I think I've said quite enough about that. It is quite clear that the moderator of the Church of Scotland could learn a lot about the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrine by what was given him. But I doubt very much whether the Pope could ever see the blood of the martyrs of the Scottish Covenanters or anyone else who died for the cause in a pebble from the Lake of Galilee. But that's the kind of thing. It's all one-way traffic. Rome has remained absolutely faithful to what she is. And at least we can say that she's been honest, absolutely honest. But we cannot say that of our leaders. They have been deliberately deceptive and in fact have actually gone so far as to be publicly dishonest, telling us over the radio and on television that they were going for a cup of tea and nothing less and nothing more, only to find out afterwards that they discussed reunion and the possibilities of it, which we all suspected anyway, those of us who had a little more perception, um, uh, that, uh, that they had in fact discussed uh, reunion uh, and so on and so forth. <coughs> now there are reunion schemes. Now, now, just to shock you, I take from today's papers, no, I've not taken them from last week's, nor yesterday's, but just from today's, a few things. Listen to this. Many evangelicals sympathetic to the ecumenical movement do not realize how sharply the momentum is increasing for union with Rome. They fondly imagine that the gulf between Rome and the Protestant churches is too vast to be bridged, at least in our lifetime. 
It is time they awoke to the strength of the intention of many church leaders to bring about such a union. Discussing the question in his diocesan review, the Bishop of Southwark, not the most extreme of ecumenists, asserts that he can accept nine-tenths of Roman Catholic doctrines. And although he expresses strong reservations regarding the remaining tenth, he makes two-stage proposals for bridging the gap. He seems more concerned about the papacy than about the doctrines of Rome, which true Protestants can never accept, concerning Mary, intercession of the saints, purgatory, and the most important of all, transubstantiation. Dr. Stockwood even suggests that the clergy of the two churches should stand together at the communion table, each giving what he believes he is entitled to give without questioning um, of his status. It seems that the status of clergy is more important to the bishop than the profoundly differing conceptions of the mass and the communion service. Of course, he acknowledges there are risks, but the cause of unity is worth all the risks. That was from the light of faith today. The ecumenical patriarch Athagonorus of Constantinople has been quoted as saying that the reunion of the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches would be achieved in the foreseeable future. In a report from Istanbul received in New York, he said that the Pope would hold the place of honour in a reunited church as the Bishop of Rome or as the Patriarch of the West. The Patriarch, who is 81, said that he intended to visit the Pope next year to resume confidential discussions begun when the Pope visited Jerusalem in 1964. In the Christian and Christianity Today, this is what we read, timetable for unity. This is what has been put before the, um, uh, the um, uh, church, the Anglican Church. It is the suggestion of the British Council of Churches, uh, which has drawn up a timetable of dates for eight targets. First, Anglican Methodist reunion, completion of state one. That is integration of ministries and intercommunion. Two, Anglican Methodist reunion, completion of state two, that is full organic union. Three, inauguration of Congregational Presbyterian reunion. Four, full communion between Anglicans and Presbyterians. Five, initiation of reunion talks between those four denominations and all other British Council of Churches member churches who are willing to join in. Six, completion of such talks and submission of proposals to the churches concerned. Seven, signing of the covenant to work together for reunion by a specific specified target date, eight, the specified target date, Easter 1980. Now mark the date, Easter 1980. And then from the magazine from the folk in Scandinavia, today I learn um, that, um, in, that the churches in Denmark, for instance, that are in the World Council of Churches are the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Apostolic Church. That's a very big surprise. The Missionsverbund, that is that the Congregationalists, and the Salvation Army. All of them have joined the World Council of Churches. Now you understand just how far this matter of reunion is going. Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, then Presbyterians, Congregation with Anglican Methodists, the four joining together by 1980. Make absolutely no mistake about it. The next step is reunion with Rome. This thing is happening all over Europe. In Holland, it is the Reformed Church uh, and other groups. In Germany, it is the Lutheran Church with the Roman Catholic Church. In, in France, it is the Huguenot Church, the Reformed Church. And so we could go on and go on. But you've heard quite a lot of that before. There is no need to say a lot about it. The aim is a world church. 
In the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the temple became a corrupt counterfeit thing with an apostate high priest, an apostate priesthood, so that its very worship and service and testimony became the expression of that apostasy. Apostasy means, literally, if you don't understand the word, it li means literally the abandonment of true faith, original vows, and original principles. Now get it. Apostasy means the abandonment of true faith, original vows, and original principles. Now that's what we mean by apostasy. In the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, it was an apostate high priest who headed up the temple. It was an apostate priesthood. It had to be apostate because it had to indulge in all kinds of Gentile heathen practices in order to survive. And you know as well as I do that the high priest supervised the abomination of desolation being put in its place in the temple uh, during his reign, during the reign also of Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. Now that apostasy in 175 BC, beginning just about that time, was but the foreshadowing of the harlot and the false prophet that we read of in the book of Revelation, and was Satan's final great attempt to take over the church of God. Now we have that as but a foreshadowing. In other words, in the last days, whenever those last days are, whether we're in them or not, in the last days there's going to be a final great takeover attempt by the evil one. He wants an apostate church. Now what does that mean? A church which has abandoned its true faith. It has abandoned its original vows and it has abandoned its original principles. Now, why are we against reunion? We here don't belong to any denomination. We were simply orthodox Christians and believe in the unity of every single true child of God. We are against it for this reason, that it is the reunifying of apostate Christians. It is the reunion of apostate Christians. They've left the true faith. They've left their original vows and they've left their original principles. They're not even prepared to bother about the people who died for the faith. They're not even prepared to bother about the book. Anything that they may be one is just a hodgepodge, a mess. That's all. Now, the creation of that counterfeit church is the result of the great apostasy foretold in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse uh, uh, um, 3. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not come, that's the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him, except the apostasy come first. The Greek word apostasy, the falling away, the great rebellion, the apostasy come first. Now this apostasy is going to produce a counterfeit church, so counterfeit, so apostate, that the Antichrist can take his place in it as God. He can actually inveigle himself into that church 
as its leader, as its supreme authority, as all as God manifest. That shows how apostate that church has got to be. Now, I don't have to remind you, do I, that um, uh, just because a thing is called Christian doesn't mean to say that it is Christian. And if you know your history of the church, one of the greatest disgraces that has ever been heaped upon the name of Christ is the so-called Christian church and what it's done to believers. Delivering to them, them to the flame, torturing them in dungeons, exiling them away. The, the, the so-called church has been one of the most vile and wicked of instruments in, in the persecution of true believers. Now, therefore, we must not be sentimental about this thing. What is evil is evil, even if it has a facade of good. And sure enough, sooner or later, it will reveal itself for what it really is. It is very interesting to compare 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit saith expressly that in later times some shall fall away from the faith as apostasy, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now this means that this great apostasy foretold in Thessalonians is not just the work of man. There are seducing spirits at work, demonic doctrines, doctrines of demons, doctrines that are propagated by the activity of demons. And if you turn to Revelation, and chapter 16 and verse 13, we read this. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits, as it were frogs. For they are spirits of demons, working signs which go forth unto the kings of the whole world to gather them together unto the war of the great day of God, the all mighty. This great harlot that we spoke about last week, who rides upon the beast, is a very interesting character. For I want you to note that she was once pure and she is now defiled. She has become a harlot. She was once a virgin she is now ready to sell herself to anything and to anyone. That's a very important point to make. This false prophet and this harlot, this great harlot, will be willing tools of the beast. Now do note in Revelation chapter 17 that the harlot is carried by the beast. That is the actual word. She is carried by the beast. She's supported by the beast. She's carried along by the beast. She doesn't actually walk herself. She sits on the beast and is carried along by him. Now, that is very interesting because it means that without him, she has no power and makes no progress. She has no influence. In other words, the, sim the symbolic meaning of her being carried by the beast is that she derives her power and influence from this great political economic system. She is, in fact, wedded to the state. She has become a tool of whoever is in charge. 
Now that's a very important point. We nowhere read of this harlot walking. She is simply carried by the beast. The interesting thing is that when the beast has used her to the full, he turns around and destroys her. <coughs> turns around and destroys her. You'll find that in chapter 18, end of 17 and chapter 18. It seems reasonably clear that this harlot is a religious system centered in the political capital of the beast. Now, here is a chart. You'll be able to have these if you want to afterwards. But um, here is a chart that we have um, made out that may just help you to understand why we think that the harlot is a religious system. Because you must note the amazing comparison between the harlot, the great harlot, and the bride of Christ. Now, if you take your Bible and look these up, you'll find it. Revelation 17.1, she is called the great harlot. If you look at Revelation 19, verse 7, we read of the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ. The harlot, the bride. The one who was a virgin and is now absolutely defiled and sells herself to anyone and anything. And the, and, and the bride who has remained a betrothed virgin, chaste and pure, to her true husband. Then in Revelation 17:4 we read this. We read, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls. Chapter 18, verse 16, She that was arrayed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stone and pearl. Gold, precious stone, and pearl. She is literally decked with, it says in the Revised Version and the American Standard Version, gilded. Gilded with is the actual um, uh, word. She is gilded with gold, precious stone, and pearl. In other words, it's only skin deep. But if you read Revelation 21, 18 to 21, you will find that the bride of Christ is gold, precious stone and pearl. The city is gold, precious stone and pearl. But that is made out of gold, precious stone and pearl. It's not, she's not gilded with it. It's not skin deep. She is produced out of it. She is, she is gold through and through, precious stone through and through, pearl through and through. It's the real, genuine thing. Now, another interesting thing is that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet and in chapter 18, verse 16, in fine linen. The only color that is not mentioned is blue. And these colors are the colors of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, the temple again. Exactly so. The only color that's left out is blue. Now, if you come to Revelation 17:5, we read that she is called a name written mystery. If we read Ephesians 3, 4 to 6 and 5, 32, we read of the mystery of the ages. You remember? What um, Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 4, Whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery is the bride the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, she is called mystery. This harlot is a mystery. 
But the mystery of the ages is the bride of Christ. Revelation 17.5, she's called Babylon the Great. Revelation 21.2, we read of the bride as the new Jerusalem, the city of God. In Revelation 17.5, she's called the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In Galatians 4.26, we read Jerusalem, which is above, who is the mother of us all. Now, that small, brief comparison ought to lead us to one conclusion, that this harlot who consorts with the Antichrist is a counterfeit bride. She is a counterfeit church. The bride of Christ is the true church of Christ. The harlot is the counterfeit church of Christ. This harlot takes to herself all the colours, all the materials, all the substances, and indeed even the names that are attached to the true church. She, she presents herself as the church of God, as the body corporate of Jesus Christ. In actual fact, she is apostate, she is a harlot, she is an adulteress, She's given herself up to all kinds of things, union with all kinds of evil things. Now that, again, is very important. Can she be identified? Well, there are two or three things that we read of in Revelation. First of all, Revelation 17, verse 6. We read this. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now that's our first clue to identification. This harlot is a persecutor and a murderer of believers. The second thing we read is in chapter 18, verse 24, it's the same, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that have been slain upon the earth. Got it again. That's the first clue. The second clue is Revelation 17, verse 2. Revelation 17, verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. They were united to her. She was united. She became one flesh with the kings of the earth. In other words, it is something that has political union, is wedded to the political union that the kings of the earth represent. That's very clear. That's the second thing. Uh, verse 18, we have it again. The woman whom thou sawest is the great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. That's a remarkable phrase. She reigneth over the kings of the earth. Then, again, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 9. Here is the, uh, the, here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, I suppose all the majority of, of, of uh, Bible scholars and theologians are completely united that this harlot is Rome. Now, even all Roman Catholic theologians are united on this point. No one digresses, of, uh, for, shall I say, for the most part, from this identification that this harlot is Rome. The point is that the Roman Catholic Church says it is imperial Rome. <coughs> Whereas 
other believers, because of the course of the Roman Church, have identified it with religious Rome. I am persuaded that it is both. I think that this religious system is centered or going to be centered in the capital of the Antichrist. That's the point. In other words, when you read in chapter 18 of all the merchandise and the wealth and the barter and the commerce that is centered here, when it is destroyed, it has meaning. Because in that one city is not only the central core of administration of this great system, but also it is the religious headquarters of that system as well. In other words, it seems to me that we have here nominal Christendom reunited in, an, in, in, in apostasy to Rome with its headquarters in Rome. It's as simple as that, and of course, I, we may well uh, live to see whether I'm right or wrong. I'm quite happy to be proved wrong on this point. But that is my conviction, that you have here, in symbolic form, the reunifying of the whole of nominal Christendom, all the historic denominations, to Rome, with its headquarters centered in the Rome. I go further, I would say it's centered actually in the Vatican. Now, who does the false prophet represent? Well, the false prophet, you will see, represents the Lamb. Look at it, Revelation 13, verse 11. He represents the Lamb, but he has the horns, he has the horns of the Lamb, but he speaks like the dragon. In other words, he represents the Lamb of God, but he speaks the word of the devil. It's as simple as that. He, 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 he appears as the representative of Jesus Christ on earth. But in actual fact, his job is to do the work of the devil. Now, this is this second beast that we read of uh, here in... Um, in Revelation, chapter 13, verse 11. If you read verse 4, verse 11, and you compare it with 16, verse 11, you'll find that this lamb beast is called the false prophet. Now, it would seem to me that he symbolizes the leadership of this counterfeit church. For this false prophet is everywhere spoken of, not as a system, but as a person. And therefore it seems to me that he represents Christ. He is the vicar of Christ. He is the representative of Christ. He is the one who stands in the place of Christ. But in spite of the fact that he's, he represents Christ, that is his claim, he speaks the words of the devil and he does the work of the devil and he, he fulfills the purpose of the devil. That is the meaning as I see it. Certainly he uses all his supernatural powers to support and carry out the policies of the Antichrist. If you look in chapter 13 and verse 12, we read, He exerciseth all the authority of the first beast in his sight, and he maketh the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose death stroke was healed. And he doeth great signs that he should even make fire to come down out of heaven upon the earth in the sight of men. 
and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by reason of the signs which it was given him to do in the sight of the beast. Now, if you read on right the way through to verse 15, you will find that everything the false prophet does is in support of the Antichrist. He has become the willing and devoted tool of the Antichrist. This is exactly the history of Antiochus Epiphanes. Jason, the high priest, became the devoted and willing tool of Antiochus in the carrying out of all his policies, even when it meant the slaughter of thousands and thousands of God's people. The high priest took the side of a Gentile heathen king against his own people, he who's supposed to represent them. And the one who followed him was no better. Now, this false prophet makes it impossible for anyone to conduct a living unless they are registered. Uh, the system has a kind, the, the, the system of the Antichrist, this great political system which is going to arise, has a kind of vast trade union with a closed shop policy. Now, don't get carried away just by the symbolism. That's exactly what it means. Listen. And he causeth the, all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the bond, that they be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead, and that no man should be able to buy or to sell, save he that hath the mark, even the name of the beast, or the number of his name. In other words, you've got a great um, system of registration, a kind of identity system whereby you have to register, and in return, you receive the mark of the beast. In other words, you receive the right, the permit, to conduct a living, a permit to live a normal life. In other words, it would seem to me that all the great positions will be closed to anyone, just as they are behind the Iron Curtain and elsewhere. It is entirely closed unless you're a party member. So it will be, it will be a great closed shop policy. You can't even conduct a living unless you're registered and have a party card. It's as simple as that, putting it in language that we all understand. Indeed, the false prophet is the means of many being deceived and deluded and true believers being eliminated. Thus, the Antichrist will take his place in the temple of God. It says in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 4, he shall take his place in the temple of God and give himself out as God. This is how he does it, by way of this, this leader of a counterfeit religious system wedded to the political economic system. Now, I don't know whether I'm making myself clear enough to you, but this is why the word of God is absolutely dogmatic upon this matter. Listen to it. As if God by the Spirit knows that in those days there will be very much confusion. Listen to what the Lord says in the middle of chapter 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come forth my people out of her, that ye have no fellowship with her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. In other words, the word of God is absolutely dogmatic that every single true Christian should break any connection they have with that harlot. 
In other words, I could not belong to a denomination which is represented in this theory, this World Council of Churches, or as any part or parcel in what is happening. The Word of God is absolutely dogmatic in this matter. And the time has come to be absolutely clear about it. The same you will find again in 2 Corinthians and chapter 6 and verse 14 where the word is even more clearly, clearly put. It says this, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness and iniquity, what communion light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial. Now Belial is the Antichrist or what portion hath a believer with an unbeliever or what agreement hath a temple of God with idols, for we are a temple of the living God. Then it goes on, Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now, it will be the true church, unadulterated, though failing in many ways, and poor, that will present Antichrist with his great problem. To him they will appear unreasonable, stubborn, short-sighted, narrow-minded, old-fashioned bigots and divisionists. <clears throat> and as far as he is concerned, they will appear to him to frustrate his policy wherever they are found in numbers. In other words, if these Christians increase, it means the frustration of his policy. So there is only one thing to do. Contain them. Contain them. Stop them from spreading in order that his policy may succeed. And if by threats and by pressure they are not prepared to see a reason, then wipe them out. Because it would be better to wipe out the possible cause of friction and trouble than to allow uh, them to continue with all the possible attendant uh, problems. The fact that so many Christians, the historic denominations and so on, are, are supporting him puts such believers in an even worse light. The point is that the devil, the, the Antichrist, can turn around and say, these people are so unreasonable. They are so utterly unreasonable. They're so divisive. Here there are all the historic denominations, all the reformed traditions, are supporting me. They, they joined uh, me in, in the fulfilling of my policy. They see reason. But these stubborn, old-fashioned, bigoted people, are, will not only not join in, but they are dogmatically against my policy. Now, that is the kind of position in the last days that the true church will be in. His point is they won't even join in with the one, with the one Christian church. There is only one Christian church now. Why don't these people join in? They say they worship Christ. They say they believe in Christ. Well, why don't they join in? with these others. These others have, have, um, have um, sacrificed very greatly to be together. They, they have sunk real differences in order to be united. 
here are these old-fashioned people who are so unloving, so uncharitable, and so obstinate in their beliefs that they won't even yield in a point. Furthermore, they won't even admit that they might be wrong. They dogmatically state that they are right. Now, there's nothing that a dictator dislikes more than people who refuse to yield. And um, these people, in his eyes, that hold and teach beliefs not in keeping with the spirit and progress of the age, who won't even consider whether they may be possibly wrong, they must either be brought to see reason or eliminated. In other words, the final solution, the final solution is something which um, uh, the devil has up his sleeve. The final solution is in the very end part of the tribulation, the complete annihilation of Christians and Jews. Just as in the Nazi party scheme, the final solution was first the eradication of the Jew and then the eradication of the evangelical. And that was only discovered after the end, at the end of the war, that um, that's what it would be. Thus, will this will occasion the most terrible persecution uh, in world history, the Great Tribulation of which all that has preceded has been but a mere shadow. Now, if you read Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, you will read that it was a time such as has never been in the history of the world. And if you read uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I just read it. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, nor ever shall be. This is the last final attempt of Satan to frustrate Christ's coming by simply annihilating the church. He will throw every resource, his last ounce of energy, into this last great onslaught. And furthermore, God will let him go to lengths to which he has never before been permitted in his dealing with Christian people. Now, it is in connection with that that the figure three and a half appears again and again and again. I don't think it would be helpful for us this evening to spend so much time on that, although I had meant to. Um, but this figure, three and a half, appears again and again. Sometimes it's 42 months. Sometimes it's 1,290 days. Sometimes it's 1,350 days. Sometimes it's called a time, times, and half 
a time. But always the thing adds up again three and a half, three and a half, three and a half, three and a half. Wherever you go is three and a half years, more or less, approximately three and a half years. And I believe that there is very much and real evidence that there may well be at the very end a time of persecution which so short will be the most terrible onslaught that Christians have ever been subjected to. Now it is during that time that the Lord will return. There's always been controversies whether he will return before it and, and, and take all his people uh, from it so that none will go through it. There are others who believe that the believers will go right the way through it. I am not going to say too much on that. What I do know is this, that sometime during that period, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and will take to be with himself those who are ready for him. Now, that is the great tribulation that everywhere is spoken of in Scripture and which is associated with the Antichrist. It is during that time that the abomination of desolation appears in the temple itself. You'll remember in Daniel 11:31, it tells us of the abomination of desolation that comes in the temple. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, we're told, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in the temple, then let him that is in Judea flee to the mountains, and so on and so forth. And then again, in Mark 13, 14, in the Revised Version, and the American Standard Version, it's very interesting that instead of referring to the abomination of desolation as it, it speaks of it as him, he, when you see him. So that's very interesting too. Now when you compare that with 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, I think you understand who the abomination of desolation is. For it speaks there of him that sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Now, all this we have learnt from Antiochus Epiphanes. We have learnt quite a lot about the character, the personality, and the policies of the Antichrist from this man. Does his origin, his sphere of influence and in government, give any clue as to where Antichrist will come from? Uh, his sphere was Greece and Egypt. And he ruled from Syria. His origin was Greece. Does that give us any clue at all? Certainly one thing is absolutely clear. And that is that one of the characteristics of Antiochus Epiphanes was both the suddenness and speed of his appearance and successes. If you read through Daniel and if any of you want the references, I'll give them to you, you will find again and again it says he suddenly came, suddenly came, with an overwhelming force. He overwhelmed them. Um, it speaks of him destroying mighty ones amongst God's people and the saints. Suddenly, he will suddenly take them in their security. 
You know, many people in the other countries of Europe in the last war found it very hard to believe that the German people did not know what happened in the concentration camps. But the truth remains that a very large number of Germans had absolutely no idea at all as to what was happening in Germany. Now, I was one of those who believed that um, they were just hiding the facts and weren't prepared to admit it. But since then, I have got to know dear people who were once Nazis, who are now dear Christians. And when they've opened their hearts and we've talked about those days, I have said to them, as Nazis, did you know, for instance, the friends, many of the ones that you know in Linz, just 12 miles from Linz is one of the most terrible concentration camps, Mauthausen, in which 196,000 people died. Yet those people swore to me that they never knew, never knew. They said all the time the trains rumbled through at night. We thought they were soldiers going to the front. We thought sometimes they were workers being transported to another part. They said it always went through between the hours of two and four o'clock in the morning. Whenever those trains packed with people went through, Sister Slobetsky told me that the only time she realized something funny was happening was when a train was stopped in Linz and she was asked if she would go to help in the delousing of clothes. She had a big firm that dealt with uh, getting rid of wood boarding beetles and so on. And she said when she got there in the middle of the night, she found these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and their clothes all on one side and she was told, she asked what on earth was wrong and she was told, oh these people um, are being taken from one place to another for their own safety and we want to get out, we're, we're transporting them in the middle of the night because the British bombers will bomb them. And Sister Slobetsky entirely accepted the explanation, cleaned up the clothes, and of course she had no idea at that time that they were being transported to Mauthausen from which none of them ever returned. Now, that makes you realise, when you speak with such people, how a man so devil-possessed as Hitler could win an intelligent, cultured, refined people so that at the end of the war, thousands of young people willingly offered themselves to die on the front for him. They believed in him. Not one, only few, some of them did, but very few of them knew that behind that whole facade was the destruction of millions and millions of innocent people. Those who did see people disappear, like Theo Lang's mother, and father, she was very anti-Nazi, she saw Jewish people vanishing from their homes in the area in which they lived, they didn't dare ask. They didn't dare ask. They just accepted the explanation given that the people were being deported or exported. That's all. No one dare ask. So, dear friend, don't ever think that it can't happen. Once you've got a man who's deluded and deceived the nations, and once you've got someone in power who, who, who has policies that seem so good and can put them over with such good propaganda, why many of us may vanish from our homes in the middle of the night and no one will dare ask a question. Where have they gone? They'll be too frightened that they will get involved. Just vanish overnight. So you, dear parents, See that your children are instructed in the things of God. It may be that these days are a long way off. 
It may be that they're near. But whatever happens, see that your children are instructed in the things of God that they will never forget. The godly testimony and, and, and uh, example of parents will live in children's hearts when their parents are torn away from them. Well, maybe that's rather dark. Have we any indication at all if we are, in fact, in the last days? Have we got any indication at all as to whether there is anyone in the world who might be this figure, this Antichrist? Now, of course, people have said that Napoleon was Antichrist, as they once thought Nero was Antichrist. They have said Mussolini was Antichrist. They've said Hitler was Antichrist. They've said Stalin was Antichrist. Uh, they've, uh, they've been proved wrong in one sense only. These men were Antichrists. Um, but um, they were not the Antichrist. Nevertheless, I just read something to you which I think is, uh, is remarkable. I believe that the gift this woman has is evil. I believe its origin is holy of the devil. But I also believe that it is absolutely correct. She is a woman called Jean Dixon. She is the confidant of the president of the United States ever since she predicted 11 years before he was assassinated the assassination of President Kennedy. That was in fact predicted in a magazine and recorded all over the United States and when it happened people remembered it. Why she has become such a famous woman now and in such high circles and <laughs> because she's a very wealthy woman and married to a very powerful um, man but because, in actual fact, uh, this woman tried to get all the personal friends of President Kennedy to dissuade him from going to Dallas. And all of them have borne witness to the fact in this book of, of how she pleaded with them by letter and by phone to stop him. But no one would do so. And she knew that he was going to be murdered. She predicted Nehru's death and his success and his succession by Shastri eight years before, that China would go communistic three years before it happened, the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, Russia's launching of the world's first satellite, the Kremlin shake-up ending with Khrushchev's dismissal and Suslov's takeover, all years before and all recorded in American newspapers so that they can be proved what is right and what is wrong. Now I read just these few small extracts that I believe have something for us that may have something for us. One of the visions she had in um, 1958. The Holy Mother's face came alive, Jean reverently recounts, and the most magnificent sunshine that I had ever seen flooded down from the dome of the church. It was a dark, stormy morning outside, and the church was virtually empty, but suddenly brilliant rays shone on every imaginable people and religion. The cathedral overflowed with peasants, kings, queens, the rich and poor of every nationality and creed. I could not see a single vacant pew. Everyone was bathed in the same sunshine, and I seemed to be standing on something as soft as new-fallen snow. A remarkable peace overcame me, and I knew that a council of our church, she's a practicing Roman Catholic, would soon bring together under the roof of the Holy See in Rome the religions and nationalities of all the world. The vision slowly faded, but the memory remained vivid. 
When Jean went to her office, she immediately sought out Shirley Pike, her part-time secretary, who was a Roman Catholic convert. Mrs. Mrs. Pike recalls that Jean was literally glowing as she described the vision that had come to her that rainy morning. Our church is going to call a great council of all the faiths and creeds, Jean told her. People from every land will be represented, and eventually all religions will be brought together under the one sun. Our holy see in Rome is going to start the trend. Less than four years after Jean's vision in St. Matthew's Cathedral, Pope John XXIII summoned an ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. The second ever to have been held in St. Peter's Basilica. 2,700 high prelates attended, making it the greatest gathering of the Roman Catholic hierarchy in history. In attendance also as delicate observers were 28 non-Catholic prelates, representatives of most major Protestant denominations, and dignitaries from the Eastern Orthodox Church of the Middle East and of the Russian Orthodox Church. The following September, the Ecumenical Council reconvened with 2,500 ecclesiastical dignitaries and 50 observers from non-Catholic denominations. Pope Paul VI, in his opening discourse, made an appeal for Christian unity and stated that the long-range goal of the Council was the complete and universal union of all Christians. Now, that's the first thing. The second vision is this that followed just a little later in the same year. Suddenly, the very air seemed rarefied. A glorious light shone down again from the dome of the cathedral, and before me stood the Holy Mother. She was draped in purplish blue and surrounded by gold and white rays which formed a halo of light around her entire person. In the cloud-like formation to the right and just above her, I read the word Fatima, and sensed that the long secret prophecy of Fatima was to be revealed to me. I saw the throne of the Pope, but it was empty. Off to one side I was shown a Pope with blood running down his face and dripping over his left shoulder. Green leaves of knowledge showered down from above, expanding as they fell. I saw hands reaching out for the throne, but no one sat in it. So I realized that within this century, a pope will be bodily harmed. When this occurs, the head of the church will thereafter have a different insignia than that of pope. Because the unearthly light continued to shine so brightly on the papal throne, I knew that power would still be there, but, the, the, but that it would not rest in the person of a pope. Instead, the Catholic Church would blaze the trail for all peoples of every religion to discover the meaning of the almighty power, to grow in wisdom and knowledge. In other words, if that should be true, if the Roman Catholic Church were prepared to change the name of the papacy, though keep the office, the reunion of all Christendom would be almost instantaneous. The last thing is this. Uh, the vision which Jean considers to be the most significant and soul-stirring of her life occurred shortly, shortly before sunrise on February 5th, 1962. The date itself may have special significance, though Jean was unaware of that fact at the time. For several months beforehand, astrologers and soothsayers had been predicting an earth-shaking event on that day. Some even forecast the end of the world because of a rare conjunction of the planets. A similar conjunction which occurred nearly 2,000 years ago is believed by some biblical scholars to explain the bright star in the east which dazzled shepherds and guided three wise men to a humble manger behind a crowded inn in Bethlehem. Now listen. Jean shifted her gaze back to the baby. He had by now grown to manhood, and a small cross which formed above him began to expand until it dripped over the earth in all directions. Simultaneously, peoples of every race, religion and colour, black, yellow, red, brown and white, each kneeling and lifting his arms in worshipful adoration, surrounded him. They were all as one, Unlike previous visions, which had gradually faded away from Jean, this one moved ever nearer until she seemed to be in the very midst of the action, joining in the adoring worship. I felt like a tiny seed and ready to sprout and grow, she says, but I was only one of millions of similar seeds. 
I knew within my heart, here is the beginning of wisdom. The room was becoming dark again, and though she was still caught up in the spell of the vision, Jean glanced, glanced automatically at a bedside clock. The time was 7.17 a.m. What does it mean? What is the significance of this strange visitation on a dull February morning in Washington, a third of the way around the world from Egypt? Jean feels that she's been shown that answer. A bit haltingly, she explains it this way. A child born somewhere in the Middle East shortly after 7 a.m. on February the 5th, 1962, will revolutionize the world. Before the close of the century, he will bring together all mankind in one all-embracing faith. This will be the foundation of a new Christianity with every sect and creed united through this man who will walk among the people to spread the wisdom of the almighty power. This person, though born of humble peasant origin, uh, just right now, there was nothing kingly about his coming, no kings or shepherds to do homage to this newborn baby, but he is the answer to the prayers of a troubled world. Mankind will begin to feel the great force of this man in the early 1980s, and during the subsequent ten years, the world as we know it will be reshaped and revamped into one without wars or suffering. His power will grow greatly until 1999, at which time the, time the peoples of this earth will probably discover the full meaning of the vision. Now, you can, you can take that for what it's worth, but it is remarkable. Even if this is absolute rubbish, it is quite remarkable that someone should see something like that which is so near to Scripture uh, and yet who doesn't really understand it. This is how she ends this book, or how the book is in, it's written by a journalist of one of the big American papers. Jean Dixon believes that this symbolic torch conserves an inspiration for those living during the Holocaust, which she foresees for the 1980s. She sees a Third World War. After this period, she forecasts that Rome will once again become the world's foremost center of culture, learning, and religion, and that the Middle Eastern child whose birth she witnessed in the vision on February the 5th, 62, will unite all warring creeds and sects into one embracing faith. Well, now, whatever you and I may feel, the fact is that before the end comes, this strange figure will appear. I'm not talking about this figure, but the figure in the Bible. We will leave, I think, to another week the, the more happy and uplifting side of what the Lord will do for those who know him. Uh, I'm sorry to end on a rather heavy and dark note uh, this evening, but there is just one thing which we'll say again, that again and again in that <coughs> book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, you will find there is the little word until. And that little word until is the most glorious of all, for it speaks of the sovereignty and the power of God. Until... He whose right it is to reign shall come. Well, that's at least some comfort to us. Shall we pray? And now, Lord Jesus, we do pray that thou wouldst help us very greatly in all that we have heard this evening. We commit it to thee, beloved Lord, and pray that thou wouldst write this upon our hearts, that we may be people, Lord, who can sort out what is true from what is false, and maybe those who become by thy spirit's education um, not ignorant of the days in which we live, but sensitive, Lord, to thyself. And we ask it in thy name. Amen.